The following message is brought to you by Champions Church. For more information, please visit champschurch.com. Uh, I'm excited to get into the Word this morning, but before we do, I do think it's worth acknowledging Mother's Day. It's very important to me. Now, I'm, I'm not given to changing gears for such uh, uh, days as in, you know, uh, leaving a series that we're in and, and preaching a, a specific message, but I do think it's important to acknowledge those things when we take the time to celebrate as a community that we give thanks together. So here's what I would like to do. There's not a person in this room that isn't affected by a mother in one way, shape, or form. I want to honor all of our mothers, but I want to offer that through a specific blessing this morning. I know oftentimes people, are, they stand and they sit and there's applause and things like that, but I want to encourage you just to stay seated because uh, moms are on their feet all the time, so that's my gift to you. And we're going to believe God for a wonderful blessing. I love the scripture. I love that we can commit our ways to the Lord and he will bless us with the desires of our heart. So I don't know of a single mom that doesn't have a desire in her heart most of the time, they're very unselfish. They're not for her, they're for her children. But I would love to see God make a way for those desires that are in the hearts of every mom this morning. So I want to believe God for that. You're welcome to uh, join with me in the prayer. All of you moms, just simply receive this. We're going to ask God to do something really special. Father, we give you thanks. We give you thanks for the anointing that you've placed upon mothers. We rejoice that you have set this in order, that they would... Uh, cherish and nurture, that they would give life and set example. We give you thanks for the righteousness that they've brought into our lives, for the care and the commitment, the devotion. And we ask in Jesus' name that you would see the desires in their hearts. And by your mercy and by your grace, we trust in your word and your faithfulness. Let them come to pass. Let there be tangible evidence of your goodness and your favor upon their lives. Let it be revealed in such a way that it would bring joy and thanksgiving. And we ask this to honor those that you have put in our lives that have served us with such selflessness, representing a selfless leadership that would model the life of Jesus Christ himself. We give you thanks. We rejoice in your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, moms out there. I know... Uh, for the children who have made choices like I've made choices in the past, we've definitely put moms through it, and we're very grateful that they're so steadfast, faithful, and committed to us. I'm looking forward to getting into the Word this morning. I want to maintain a steadfastness through this series. It's very important to me because the series ultimately is going to lead us to love. Now, love is extremely important. Love is necessary. In fact, love is such a powerful force, it has the ability to enter into our lives and set us free from all fear and anxiety. Now, that's a really awesome thing. That's amazing. To be free from fear and anxiety, not just so that we don't have to be afraid, but because of what being free from fear and free from anxiety can bring into our lives. It's fear and it's anxiety that leads to compromised choices and decisions. It leads to sin. 
Not being able to believe that God's going to do the things that He promises He will do will cause us to take matters into our own hands, make compromised choices and decisions, and then suffer the consequences of those things. So if we can live a life free from anxiety and free from fear, we can live a life of godliness that has wonderful, wonderful benefits. Of good choices and a lifestyle that represents all that God's called us to and therefore have the results that God promises in His Word. And we're ultimately going to get to that love, but there's steps to getting there. Now, I love that God's given us his word. I see it as an instruction manual. And what's really funny to me is that when we take these things and we begin to put them to practice, the things that we've believed for a long time just become clearer to us. A greater understanding of how to. I've had some great things happen in my life, but they happen by sheer accident. I've stumbled into great things, but I'm seeing that God hasn't called us to stumble into good things. He's called us to step-by-step move intentionally into the promises that He gives us in His Word. They're very real, they're very genuine, and my life's living proof of it. I've often said I'm not a Christian because my parents were. I'm a Christian because of things that God's tangibly done in my life. Things that I couldn't do on my own. Being liberated from addictions and bondages that I hated. I knew they were destroying my life. I wanted them gone, and I would try to quit them often, unsuccessfully. But then the power of God touched my life, and the things that I couldn't do on my own, He did. That's how I know He's real, and that's why I believe in His Word. So I want to get into the Word this morning and look at these steps. We're at step five. I want to give you a few things that we're going to find in the Scripture this morning. I like to have some things to look forward to. So we're going to look for three things this morning. One, we're going to find step five in seven steps to love. Now we've talked about the previous steps. We've talked about uh, the first four steps there. We're going to get to step five today. Step five in the seven steps to love. And then a second thing that we're going to find is what we are called to be. What we are called to be. Now, that's a wonderful call that God's put on our lives. What we are called to be. And it's for each one of us. It's no respecter of age or gender for every person. We have a calling on our life. We're going to find out what that is. And then a third thing we're going to find out, and this may be intriguing to some, we're going to find out how to see God. How to see God. Does that sound interesting to you? I'd love to know the first thought in your mind when you hear that promise. We're going to find out how to see God. Does it sound ridiculous? Does it sound exciting? I'm excited by it. Well, here's the thing about this. It's the scripture. It's the word of God. It's not some promise that I've come up with. It's his promise to us. We're going to see it in the word. We're going to believe that as we apply his instruction, we're going to get his result. How to see God. So here's where we're going to turn in the scripture to start off. 2 Peter chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to continue in the foundation that we've had for the previous messages in this series. We've been looking at seven steps to love, and we find these things laid out in 2 Peter chapter 1. We're going to begin in verse 1. It's Peter who's writing this. He's writing it to believers. That's good news. He's writing it to Christians. And he writes the following, Simon Peter, a bondservant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received the faith the same kind as ours. This faith comes by the righteousness of our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ. Now it begins in verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, seeing that God's divine power has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to 
his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you, who? You, may become partakers in the divine nature, having been redeemed or escaped the corruption that exists in this world. That's an exciting thing to think that you and me were called to partake in God's divine nature. That he's put a call upon our lives to escape the corruption that's in this world. The sin and all that is dark and all that is foul that leads to death and disease and everything unclean. He's redeemed us from those things, but not just for the purpose of saving us from those things, but with the purpose and the intention of calling us to very high places that we might share in his nature. We're going to get further into that in just a moment. I want to continue reading here in 2 Peter. We're going to see these seven steps to love now here, beginning in verse 5. Now, for this reason also, apply all diligence in your faith to supply, here's one, moral excellence. We talked about that several weeks ago. And then from moral excellence, knowledge. We talked about that as well. And from knowledge, self-control. And self-control, perseverance. And perseverance, godliness. That's what we're going to talk about today, godliness. And in your godliness, brotherly kindness or brotherly love. And in your brotherly love, love. So you see seven steps there leading to love. It starts with moral excellence. Now I know that we have a call to love, that we have a call to function and operate in love. The scripture says that God is love. The scripture says that that perfect love casts out fear. That where there's fear and anxiety in our lives, it's because there's not been the perfection of love entering in. Love is this wonderful, potent force, this power that cannot be reasoned with. It is absolute. Where there is love, fear is gone. We see these things as a promise in our lives, but yet we can still see this promise hard to come by, even among Christians. And I have to think that maybe it starts with step one, a lapse in moral excellence, becoming worldly in our mindsets and in our actions, beginning to blend in with the crowd, beginning to function and operate compromised. Ultimately, it may seem like something small, but in the end there is something that takes place, a hindrance to the love of God that perfects our lives and drives out fear and anxiety. We've got to start with moral excellence, and in that moral excellence we come into the knowledge of God. We function and operate in self-control and we're able to persevere. Now then we can function in godliness. We're going to talk about godliness for a moment. But I think it's amazing to me. I think it's absolutely amazing that godliness falls here in the middle. You would think that godliness would be the end, the ultimate. That all of these things, these steps would lead up to living a godly life. But I think in God's perfection, he's revealed it right where it needs to be. He's intentional and accurate with every word that he gives. That it would start with moral excellence because you can't be godly without it, that it would require His knowledge, His word in our lives. We can't be godly without His impartation, that it would require self-control, that we wouldn't be controlled by situation or circumstance. I've got news for you, and it's great news. Are you ready for this? Do you know God never panics? Isn't that awesome? Well, that's really what self-control is. It means the things that are going on around never affect Him. He's never moved to do something he wouldn't normally do because he just felt panicked. I just felt rushed. We have that same call upon our lives. We can function that way too. 
And then that perseverance, that ability to hold your ground, to be steady, even when all of the world and all of hell is waging war against you, you can keep moving in the direction that God's called you to move. I think it's very interesting that those four things are necessary before we can function in godliness. I want to talk about godliness for just a moment. Before we get into godliness, I want to finish reading here in 2 Peter. If these qualities, these qualities that are moral excellence, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly love, and love, if these things are in our lives and they are increasing, we will never be useless or unfruitful. And then verse 9 closes out this passage with this. For the one who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten the purification of former sins. Therefore, be all the more diligent to remember his calling and his choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. What an amazing promise that we can put these things to practice and never, ever fail. Because here's why in verse 11, for in these things is entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ, and it will be abundantly supplied to you. What a wonderful thing to be able to function and live in such a way that failure is not an option. Success is a lock because we're operating in the moral excellence and in the knowledge of God and patience and perseverance, godliness, functioning and operating in brotherly love and perfected by love. Now I want to talk about this fifth step. We're going to talk about godliness. Godliness is something that I think is hard for a lot of people to wrap their mind around. We feel very distant from God at times. But yet He's given us a call to be just like Him. He says so Himself. Even when He made you, when He formed you, the intention was to make you just like Him. I want to give you a couple of scriptures that we can stand on as we move forward. We'll go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. You have God making creation. He's forming all that we know as creation. He's establishing time with the stars and the universe. He's doing an incredible work, the most profound work we have recorded in the Scripture next to redemption. And in the midst of doing this work, He reveals something great. He reveals something great about you and about me. As he's beginning to form man, remember, he's outside of time. He knows the end from the beginning. When he's forming Adam, he's aware of every one of his descendants. That includes you. And he says this. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, he says, Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. Now, there's two things there that I want to just stop and look at. Image and likeness. God's making you, he's making me, and he's doing it according to two patterns, his image and his likeness. Image is an interesting thing there when you look up the word to find out what it means. What does it mean to be in the image of God? It means to be a representative figure. Imagine if somebody were to make a statue of you. It would look like you, right? But this is more than just being a figure It's about an office, kind of like this. 
We can go way into the New Testament. We'll see Paul speaking. And Paul's speaking in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. He's talking about us, that's you, being ambassadors of Christ. Now, you know what an ambassador is? You, it would help to understand that passage if we know what an ambassador is. We have a government here, the United States, and the United States has leaders in other countries. They represent the government of the United States to other countries for the purpose of serving them in communications. You're an ambassador for Jesus Christ. Here on the earth, you're representing the kingdom of heaven. In all that you do and in all that you say, you're carrying an authority. You are a representative. You're made in the image of God. A representative figure. And then you're made after or according to His likeness. When you go to find out the definition of that word, it means in like manner. Like or as. Now, when I grew up in school in English class, we knew like or as as being a simile. It was going to communicate something similar. And God's put you in this position, this position to represent His kingdom. And He's given something great. He's given the opportunity for us to grow, to mature in His likeness, to be just like Him. And there's some things that we can put to practice. Bringing these seven steps into our lives intentionally with our choices and our words lead us to that ultimate goal, step seven, which is love. And of course, God is love. I want to give you a passage of Scripture for your notes. Just to clarify something. Oftentimes when you are sharing that God's called you to be just like Him, that He's made you just like Jesus, can be a tough pill to swallow. Because oftentimes we're more aware of our failures, we're more aware of our inferiorities than we are the power of the blood of Jesus, which is perfection. But I want to give you a passage of Scripture to consider out of 1 John. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. It's speaking about you, and it's speaking about Jesus. And it's talking about a specific time. The time is when Jesus returns. Now you have to keep in mind, Jesus is holy. He is baptized in the Holy Spirit. And that's no different than any blood-bought believer baptized in the Holy Ghost. Sins washed away, all corruption removed, the Spirit of God upon and remaining on your life. And with that understanding, the passage we'll read in 1 John should make sense. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. We know that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we know that when Jesus appears, we will be like Him. Because we'll see Him as He is. That tells me something when I read that passage. If I want to know more about who I am, I need to see Jesus. Because I don't think that passage is saying that we're going to know that we're like Him, we're going to see Him and recognize Him, but we're going to see Him, and then we'll understand who God's made us to be. How He's called us to function and operate in holiness. That He's poured out His Spirit to bring all the fruits of the Holy Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, all of those things are meant to be the result of our actions and our words. When we see Him, we'll be like Him because God's made us holy. Now, 
It helps for us to understand when we're made in the image of God and after His likeness, first of all, that God is holy. We come to a place where we speak about all the wonderful things that God is. His names, you can see banners even in this room that are revealing of who God is. He's made a point to reveal to us His character and His nature. Not out of some superiority or power trip, but to reveal to us who He is and how He functions that we might go and behave the same way. But above all of those names is holiness. In the book of Revelation, you'll see an image of the throne of God. And around that throne, there are these four creatures. They're alive. They're not robots. It's not a tape recorder just set to loop. And these living creatures just say, holy, 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 all the time. Because God is holy. It's the foundation of everything else within His character. It's the foundation of His being present. It's the foundation of creation and redemption. It's the foundation of His hearing our prayers and bringing healing and provision into our lives. It's the foundation of redemption and all that is righteous. Holiness. Sometimes I think we have so much fiction introduced into our lives through entertainment that it can affect our perception of reality in the Scripture. That Jesus could come and cast out devils that he could come and the sick would be healed. And we would think that that's because of some seat of power that he holds. But the reality is that's just the effect of holiness. That there's nothing unclean that had a grip on him. It had to obey when he said go. It had to. Sickness and disease and all corruption had no place in him. That's the power of holiness. It's oftentimes hard for us to wrap our mind around it. Almost like if I were to ask you to think about the color white or the color black or something like that. You might think about the word or maybe try to picture it in your head. But when we think about holiness, it can be very difficult to think of absolute perfection. That's the power of God's mercy, that He would make such an amazing thing available into our lives. And I don't think it's an easy thing to wrap your mind around. I think academically, if we try to think our way into understanding holiness, it's going to be a very difficult task. But there's something great that God imparts out of His kindness and awareness In His goodness and in His mercy, He can make us aware of the holiness that makes up all that is righteous and that He's given this same holiness to us in full measure, not in part, not partial. And with that awareness, our value, our worth, our purpose, our function becomes so absolutely clear that God loves us and He's called us to function and operate just like Jesus. I want to give you a few passages concerning God and His holiness. Isaiah chapter 57, verse 15. God is the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. Psalm 77, verse 13. Your way, O Lord, is holy. Revelation chapter 4, verse 8. It's a song that's being delivered in the heavens. 
Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. Having an understanding that God is holy is extremely important. But now we come to a place where we have to receive that call upon our lives, that purpose, that intention behind your creation, that you would be created in His image, that you would be set off after His likeness to grow and mature into His likeness. I want to give you a couple of passages of Scripture. I mentioned before we're going to find out what we are called to be. You'll find that here, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Pay attention to how this is written. It's so awesome. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all of your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. You shall be holy for I am holy is a quote. God is saying it. It's the call upon your life and my life to carry the fullness of holiness. Now the more that we come into this, the more that we talk about it, the more that we understand it, it's meant to make us more aware of something very powerful that's taken place. The crucifixion and the resurrection, the work of Jesus Christ in your life and in my life. Because I know on my own, I don't stand a chance. Without mercy, without forgiveness, without the washing away and the cleansing of sin and corruption, there's no way that I can stand and live up to that call. The Holy One who called you has said, Be holy for I am holy. So as I read this, I don't feel some burden. I don't feel some need to strive to function in a religious manner. I become increasingly grateful for the work that was done on my behalf. What an incredible power and authority the blood of Jesus has. What a profound effect. That His blood could bring holiness into all of our lives. Not just for the purpose of escaping punishment, but for the purpose of living and operating in holiness. For a purpose we'll find here in another passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. You'll find purpose here. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house, a holy priesthood in order to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's the intention and the purpose. God's made you to be holy so that you can function and operate in a way that's pleasing to Him. Now, spiritual sacrifices is kind of a weird thing to talk about. I'd like to understand what that is. I think sometimes we can complicate things. But if you want to know what spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God are, just go to the book of Romans. I'd like to turn to Romans, if you would. Turn to chapter 12. If you don't have your Bible with you there, you can just write it down. Romans chapter 12. To define the spiritual sacrifice that's pleasing to God. You'll find it right here. I urge you, brethren... 
By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you'll prove what the will of God is. Everything that's good, acceptable, and perfect. The entire world is trying to affect how we think. The entire world is trying to get us to behave a certain way. The entire world is trying to set what they would call the standard of living. Making fun of and poking fun of the call to live and function in a godly way. But what's acceptable in God's sight as a service of worship is when we live our lives according to His Word and outside of the worldly influence that's trying to alter and change all that God has said is right. It's that that's acceptable worship. And to think for a second that coming together and singing songs, reading them off a screen is the epitome of worship would fall short. To come together and sing is a great thing. It symbolizes the unity that we would have together. A celebration, an expression of gratitude for all that God's done. But worship happens in the way you live your life. The choices and the decisions that you make. The influence that you allow to affect your choices and your decisions. Is it the voice of the world or is it the voice of God? Is it in the image and in the likeness of all that's corrupt? Or is it in the image and the likeness of all that's holy? The call on our lives is to be godly. To function in the image and the likeness of pure holiness. And it's the power of the blood of Jesus in our lives. Now here's some things that need to happen in order for us to function in a godly manner. I told you last week I thought we were probably in a top five least popular sermons ever preached. I think maybe we're about to get into a top three. We're going to talk about a word that we really don't talk about in churches at large anymore. Because this word communicates a responsibility that falls to us. We love when God's responsible for things. Oftentimes we can look around at these banners and we see them as things that God's responsible for. He's responsible for healing in my life. He's responsible for provision. He's responsible for hearing my prayers. He's responsible for my redemption. But to begin to discuss the things that God has placed on our life as a responsibility can be terrifying. Because it just might require me to change. It might require me to acknowledge the way I'm going is not the right way. The word is repent. And it's a word that we need to hear more often. It's a word that's in the scripture. In fact, the Bible says everywhere Jesus went and preached, he opened with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So if I read that, I know every single message that Jesus preached started with repentance. How amazing is that? No wonder people wanted him dead. Now, I mean that kind of halfway as a joke, but seriously. I functioned and operated in Christian ministry for a long time now. And I have preached messages and sermons where people have stood and cheered at the end of them. I mean, if that were to float my boat, I would have been a happy camper. But when it came down to changing their lives, that was altogether different. I've seen as many people get up and walk out as I've seen come in and be transformed. 
Because we're at a crossroads when we're confronted with what's true. Am I going to let this affect my life? Or am I going to reject it? So as Jesus would begin to preach, he would stand. Can you imagine the crowds and all of a sudden the hush as people saw him stand? And he would begin his message with repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now he wouldn't say it with anger, repent. But he would say it with excitement. Hey, God's giving us an opportunity. He's giving us an opportunity to hear and receive what's true and forever be changed. But it is going to require just that change. We can't hear this and like it and celebrate it and then decide not to be transformed by it. We've got to hear it, embrace it, and let it change how we think, how we act, how we operate, and it's then and only then that we're functioning in a godly state. I want to give you a few passages of Scripture. Acts chapter 26, verse 20. It talks about repentance. And it includes something amazing with repentance that should help define it and its effects. Acts chapter 26, verse 20 reads like this. Repent and turn to God. Did you hear that? If this were an instruction, how many steps would you hear? Repent and turn to God. There's two steps. Repent and turn to God. Repent and turn to God. It goes on to read like this. Repent and turn to God, performing the deeds appropriate to repentance. It's this call to change the way we live and then to begin to be different. To do the things like we ought to do it. And I love that it says repent and return to God. Remember, we're talking about godliness or God-likeness. And that repentance is meant to be the first step in turning and beginning to do things God's way. And it's only when we're doing things God's way that we're going to be godly. Repent and return to God. And perform the deeds appropriate with repentance. I mentioned before that Jesus opened up his messages with that because he's leading people to godliness. He's opening up his message with repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand and he's beginning to preach. And then wonderful things are happening. I mean, you can read in the scripture that people are being set free from bondage and affliction. People are being healed from disease and it's just the most incredible thing. But oftentimes in church, we would think that maybe that's the point. And unfortunately, that's not the case. If we were to have a church service here where you saw people liberated from demonic captivity and you saw them rise up off their deathbed and live, you saw disease cast out and devils cast out and all of these things, we would say that's a pretty awesome day at church. And i got to tell you something, I would agree with that. I think that would be pretty awesome. And I want to believe God for that every time we come together. I was in Africa preaching once, and we weren't even calling for ministry at the altar, but just during the sermon, a woman stood up and said, God just healed me. I've had an irregular heartbeat. It's disturbing to me. I've had it all my life, and it just, it's gone. I just remember thinking, praise God. That's great. But those things are not the pinnacle. 
In fact, I want to give you a passage of Scripture for your notes just to consider Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 is one to visit on your own time if you like. I'm, just going, to, I'm going to paraphrase it to you now. Because Jesus is preaching and he's opening up his messages with repent because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then he's sharing with people all of the kingdom and all of its direction and all of its counsel and all of the righteousness that's in the word of God. He's teaching and sharing them, with them everything that they need to be godly. And you see something revealed here in this small obscure passage in Matthew. You can see that the miracles are not the point. Because it goes on to say there in Matthew chapter 11 that Jesus began to renounce the cities where most of his miracles were performed because they failed to repent. How interesting is that? These cities saw amazing things. Things that couldn't be described. Things that couldn't come from the hands of doctors or psychiatrists. Things like in my life where I wanted to be free from addiction and I hated it and I cried every night and I wanted, I knew I was dying and I destroying my life but I couldn't stop. To be set free from that was absolutely a miracle. But that wasn't the point. The point was to come to repentance. To repent and return. To stop doing things the way the world would call. The way the world would influence. The way my own selfish desires would lead. And to begin doing things the way God's called me to do them. To function godly or godlike. I think we can become drawn to the miraculous I think when we have meetings and we pray for revival, we're probably praying for miracles and signs and wonders. But I think revival happens when we repent and return. And the miracles and signs and wonders are just a wonderful side effect of functioning in a godly or godlike way, operating in holiness. I want to give you another passage of Scripture. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Acts chapter 3, verse 19. It reads like this. Now it's Peter, he's preaching, he's speaking, and he's saying this, repent and return. So that, can I get a so that? Yeah, see, so that is important. Repent and return is going to be the cause. Now what you see after the so that is the effect. Repent and return. Now, I just want to make sure we're all staying together on this. Return to what? Well, return to God's image and His likeness. Return to godliness. Repent and return. Leave the world's ways and come back to God's ways. Repent and return so that, so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. I want that in my house. I want that in my marriage. I want that with my children. I want that in every aspect of my life. cause and effect. Repent and return so that sins may be wiped away. And then once these sins are wiped away, times of refreshing in the Lord. I got news for you. When God promises to bring refreshing to a situation and he brings that, you'll never be disappointed. I don't think it's ever like, ooh, what, what, that's it? It was nice for a second. 
I think when God promises to deliver refreshing to a situation, it's everything you've ever hoped for and then some. He's really good at blowing your mind. And he loves to do it. So here's something that's required for repentance. I told you now, you know, last week was maybe top five least popular sermons. Now we're stepping into the top three category. Now that we're throwing this in here, it might be the most least popular sermon topic known to Christianity. Repentance requires confession. You don't see confession a lot in today's church, especially here in the West. As, as defined, we would be part of the Protestant movement where you saw the church break off from the Catholic church. Now, the Catholic church celebrates confession often. People will go and they say, hey, I shot someone today, and the priests say, son, I absolve you. That's really not how it works, but in an effort to not be like that, we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. We just don't confess anymore. And confession is an awesome and powerful part of the Scripture. In fact, confession is what's going to ultimately make our lives a candidate to function and operate in godliness. We'll see that in just a moment. We operate in confession a lot when we minister pastorally in certain ways. When we're functioning and operating in deliverance and things like that, it's very organized confession. We confess sins and then deal with them appropriately with repentance and forgiveness, and it's extremely powerful. I want to give you a passage of Scripture, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. It's going to open with a condition. Condition. It opens with the word if. That makes it conditional. That means it's a choice. It's up to you. You can have this, you cannot have this. It's your call. It's conditional. Some of the things of God are absolute, other things are conditional. He'll never take your will from you, He will always give you a choice. This is conditional. It opens up with the word if, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9. If, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Can you say purify? If God has purified us from all unrighteousness, would that make us holy? Yes. That would position us to function and operate in the holiness, the likeness of God. The image and the likeness that we were created to operate into. The very thing that we're meant to repent and return to in order to celebrate refreshing times from the presence of God. And it's all conditional upon confession. Confession. I remember doing something as a new believer. And I'm learning things all the time, even after being in ministry for years. I just think that God is so great. He's constantly showing us things. But I remember I'd just been born again. I was born again, by the way, and I had just... I was drunk off my rocker, ran into a car and tried to flee the scene. I didn't make it very far. I ran on foot for a while, but I couldn't run very well because I was pretty lit. 
And then I was uh, arrested and I was taken and booked and all that. And it was, you know, it was there in the Travis County Jail, the Austin area. Never lived there. I was there to meet people. I think God saved me from making even worse choices that night. But the, it's the short version of the story. There's more to it. There's details in how it came to be. But the point is, there in that jail cell, I became aware of what was true. I realized that if I continued, if I bought into a lie... I was going to die. And I surrendered to that truth, and I remember crying, and I got news for you, it ain't cool to cry in county lockup. <laughs> All the guys there thought that I was going to be the tough guy pushing people around, and they just... <laughs> <laughs> but I couldn't help it. And honestly, at this point, I didn't care. And I knew, I knew that there's just, there's something that has to change in my life and I repent, I'm destroying my life. I'm not going to destroy my life anymore. I'm going to do things your way, not my way. And oh my goodness, did I feel a change, a relief. But then as soon as I got out, I was faced with choices and decisions. I mean, we all have a moment, right? If you're a born-again Christian, then you had a moment where you decided, I'm not going to live my way, I'm going to live God's way. That's a moment. But then you have the rest of your life to make that moment actually happen. I remember I got out and I was faced with the same choices. Had the opportunity to step into the same vices. And praise God, there was a capacity... To not just repent, but to repent and to return. A conviction and awareness that if I go do the same things, if I do the things the world does, then I'm worldly. If I don't do the things that God does, then I'm not godly. I've got to do it God's way. Or else all this is is another disappointment in a long string of horrible disappointments. Painful disappointments. And I remembered something being a little bit empty inside, even though great things had happened. I felt a burden. I was embarrassed by things that I had done. Really embarrassed. I mean, I'd done some things that just were not godly. Now I want to be godly, but I know I've done these things, so how can I be godly if I've done these things? And I remember thinking something. I remember thinking, I need to confess. Who's the one person that I wouldn't want to know all of this stuff? So I picked up the phone and I called my mom. <laughs> Say, Mom, you got a second? Happy Mother's Day, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I've got a second. So I need to tell you some stuff. And I gave her the most detailed list of my dirtiest laundry. It was real quiet on the other end. And you know, I don't even know that she knew what was going on. In fact, I know by her response, I don't think she understood how powerful and profound this was. Because you know what she said when I was done? She's like, you know you don't need to tell everyone that, right? <laughs> but you want to know something? At this point, I could have told everyone because it didn't have a hold of me anymore. For the first time ever, I wasn't ashamed. I wasn't embarrassed. You know what? Satan can't uncover 
what you've already revealed. It's awesome. And I believe it was that moment. I love that I was born again. It was profound. My name was written in the Lamb's book of life. I love that. But as profound a moment in my life was the moment I decided I'm going to confess my sins. And I was no longer in bondage to them. No longer ashamed. And now I operate in conviction. I just know what's right and what's wrong. If I do something wrong, I realize, wow, I really blew it. And so I go to make it right quickly. We don't cover it up and keep it a secret. And that confession did something great. Think about this scripture. If we confess our sins, God's faithful and he's just to forgive us and to purify us from all unrighteousness. Do you realize when I was born again, my sins were forgiven? But according to that scripture, I want to take a little bit of liberty with this. You can read it, see if you think the same. According to that scripture, it wasn't until I confessed my sins that I was purified from that unrighteousness. You work that out yourself. But I can tell you this. Confessing my sins completely altered the way I perceived reality, completely altered the way I viewed myself as a believer. And the liberation that I functioned and operated in is still affecting me even right here, right now. I think the forgiveness that we preach is a wonderful and mighty thing. I hope heaven is packed with people I know. But I think living and functioning in godliness, in purity, in holiness, right here and right now, is conditional upon our willingness to confess our sins one to another. No longer be held in bondage and shame. And then there's a wonderful result that comes from this purity. An incredible result. I told you before, before we close, we're going to find out how to see God. I want to give you a passage of Scripture here. We're going to close with this. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't it make you want to just elbow your neighbor and tell them all of your sins? <laughs> uh, I love the Word of God. Not because it just gives me something to do on a Sunday morning. Everything good in my life is the result of the Word of God coming to pass. Being put to practice and coming to pass. And I know that God's called us to live godly lives. He's made you in His image and after His likeness. You're made in His image and now this perfection process that's going on is bringing us into the place where we function and operate just like Him. I want to ask you to stand with me if you would. Thank you for listening to this message from Champions Church. We invite you to join us this Sunday for our celebration worship service. For more information, please visit us at champschurch.com.